and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to study the second commandment this morning. This is a part of our ongoing study in the book of Exodus. And we come to chapter 20. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. The substance of our study will be in verses 4 through 6. Uh, If the first commandment teaches us to worship the one true God, then the second commandment teaches us to worship the one true God as he prescribes. In other words, in the ways that he wants us to worship him. Many people think that this is a command just simply to avoid the worship of idols. And that's certainly partly true. But it's really has, this command really has so much more to do with the image of God and understanding where God has placed that image and how we are to worship him. And so we pick up at Exodus chapter 20. We'll read verses 1 through 6. I'll I'll set the stage again for you. The people of God have come to Mount Sinai. And at this moment, they are actually hearing the voice of God from the mountain as they stand at the base of Mount Sinai. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, it's your word. It's not mine. And so I approach you as a sinful crooked stick, recognizing that you have chosen in this moment simply to use my mouth to proclaim your word. And so I ask that you would grant to your people the ministry of your Holy Spirit, so that we might have ears to hear what you would say to us, that you would again point us to the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. It's one thing for a husband to love his wife, but it's really also quite important, as every husband knows, to love his wife as she wants to be loved. In other words, one's own perception of sincerity is not actually sufficient. I once read a testimony of a fellow who was newly married, and he loved to give his wife flowers, and there happened to be a discount florist on the way home from his office. And so every Friday he would stop, and for $11.50 he would pick up a dozen red roses. And for several months he patted himself on the back for being such a great husband, Until one Friday, he got home and his wife said, "Uh, hey, you can stop bringing me the cheap roses. Uh, I don't really even like red roses in the first place, and I know that you're getting a bargain. You don't give to your wife chocolates if she doesn't like chocolates. You do not take her on her birthday to your favorite restaurant. You do not give her your favorite birthday cake on her birthday. Because everybody knows when it comes to love and relationships, one's own perception of sincerity is really not sufficient. And the same is true in the worship of God. 
It's possible to be full of the the sincerest intentions and yet to come and, and worship God wrongly. All the pagan nations around Egypt, all the people of Egypt, worshiped some God. And they always worshiped them in a physical form, statues which represented little animals or, or morphs between animals and humans. The Bible says if God is the only God, the true God, if he is the supreme God, then it follows that his worshipers must worship him as he tells them to worship. In other words, they do not get to choose how the supreme God wants to be worshiped. This is so much more than simply about little statues. It's about understanding the image of the invisible God. That's the heart behind the second commandment. And so here we learn to worship God on his terms. And we'll use three points to kind of break down this passage. We'll look at God's image, God's warning, and finally God's promise. Let's start with God's image. As I mentioned, all the pagan nations of the world worshipped gods. Romans chapter 1 says that they exchanged the worship of the one true God, the creator God, for the creation. And they worshipped images that represented the creation. Now, how did they come up with those images? They thought them up in their minds. What would it look like for there to be a God of, of water? What would he embody? What would it look like for there to be a god of the sun? What would he look like? What if there was a goddess of fertility? What would she look like? And then they would fashion those gods out of wood or stone or metal. Critical scholars look at the Ten Commandments and they chuckle. Those who look at the commandments critically and think the Bible is a man-made book say, well, of course, These were slaves. They don't have the artisan craftsmanship of the people of Egypt. So it helped them to create laws that were conducive to their own weaknesses. Well, we can't make idols like Egypt can. The critical scholars are saying that Israel is too primitive. But that's not what God says. God says the primitive part is the Egypt part. The primitive part is to think that you can fashion a little God and set him on your counter. And this is blindness. Blindness to the living God, the creator of all things, visible and invisible. And so when you come to the Ten Commandments, God says, I saved you and I'm offering you a relationship. Verse 1, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And we recognize that relationships are always governed by a set of rules, rules for faithfulness. Number one, I'm your only God. Number two, verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And so the first commandment says, there is only one God, therefore do not divide your affections. The second commandment says, you must worship the one true God in the right way. There's really two prohibitions that are woven into this command. Number one, you are not to make images to represent God in any form. And number two, you are not to worship images of any kind. First, you don't make images to represent God in any form. Why? 
It is because the sum total of everything that God is could never be reduced to an image image that is devised in the mind of man. He is too vast. He is too supreme. His wisdom is too infinite. His power is too great. His holiness inexhaustible. His justice, perfect. His goodness, unsearchable. His truth is inexpressible by human hands. So you cannot reduce Yahweh into a metal statue of a donkey or a cow or a bird. That is a massive understatement of his glory. One scholar explains why this is so important to the Lord and his people. He says, representations of Yahweh in human form or animal form violates his uniqueness and his incomparableness. It would place Yahweh on the level with other deities and cause his uniqueness to be dissolved. The Lord says, I'm not man-made like the imaginings of a human mind. I cannot be contained. I am completely free. You remember Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. He says, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And yet for most of us, the, the concept of idolatry seems like a foreign concept. I've been using many of the same commentaries up until this point. Over the last couple of weeks, I picked up another couple of ones that I've been wanting to use. And I picked up one by Douglas Stewart, who's a former Old Testament scholar at Gordon-Conwell. And he offers an explanation to help us understand. It's an excursus on idolatry. To help us understand what was the real attraction of idols. I can't list them all because of time, but these are three. Number one, he says, idolatry was guaranteed. Ancient people believed that the offerings that they brought to an idol and the prayers they said to the idol's presence were fully and unfailingly perceived by the God that that idol represented. And so it's 100% certainty. Secondly, idolatry was selfish. Ancient people believed that idols could do virtually anything for themselves except feed themselves. And so it was thought That if you were to bring a food offering to that God and then he was to eat, then he was obligated to use his power in the ways that you wanted because you were the one who fed him. Thirdly, idolatry was convenient in the sense that you basically can set up the statues or poles wherever you want. And it was thought that wherever you set them up, there you have access to that God and his power. Now, Dr. Stewart's list of 10 goes on to mention much more, but you can see in these first three that the heart of the issue is really control, which is what makes the worship of Yahweh completely different than the worship of idols. You cannot control the Lord. If you could, he wouldn't be God. Our God is free to do all that he wills, and depending on the posture of your heart, that fact will either strike you as comforting or terrifying. The second part of this command is that you and I are, free, are not free to worship images of any kind. He says in verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. The, the beautiful thrust of this passage right here in this spot is a tone of shame. 
As if to say, when you bow down and you worship images, you are not ser- you're not serving the Lord. You're not even serving yourself. Instead, you give yourself in servitude to an image. And there you give yourself to shameful bondage. Here you might want to consider pornography. You may want to consider what an image in which men and women bow down in hopes of getting something from it, and all the while their hearts are in shameful bondage. Would this command mean that God then is opposed to art, artful beauty in sanctuaries? That's not what it means. The tabernacle that we will study later in the book of Exodus is full of beautiful fixtures of gold. The lampstand is modeled to look like flowering almond branches. The bread of presence is is an ornate table. Even the Ark of the Covenant is overlaid with images of angels whose wings are bowed forward, their heads are down, and their wings link in the middle. Wings outstretched, and all of this is in gold. You see, in the tabernacle, objects were associated with Yahweh. They were associated with his manifestation, his presence. And that is completely different from the way pagans supposedly shared this divine nature in the God that's represented on their table. In the tabernacle, the pieces are used to point to the Lord, but they are never in themselves worshipped. Not to mention the fact that God prescribed them. He's the one who said, this is how I want you to build it. And so in the Old Testament worship, those were, those were part of giving honor to the Lord. Uh, God's not opposed to art. One pastor said it this way, God is opposed to the fusing of an object with spiritual efficacy. As if an artifact can bring you closer to God or represent God or somehow establish a deeper communion with God. Some people feel that way about the cross that hangs around their neck. Wearing it helps me feel closer to God. When I don't wear it, I feel lost. Others feel that way about a crucifix in their pocket. They rub it to feel a sense of God's presence and his help. Rosary beads for prayer. Bowing and praying to a statue of a saint or bowing to a sculpture of Mary or Jesus. I've shared with some of you when I moved to my house in Auburn, we found a little statue in our backyard. It was turned upside down. It was buried in a pill bottle. A quick internet search told me that it was either St. Joseph, the patron saint of home buying and selling, or St. Anthony, patron saint of lost items, or perhaps it was St. Jude, the patron saint of lost causes. You'll have to give me a little grace here. It's hard to tell the difference between them. Their robes and beards look similar, especially buried upside down in a pill bottle. You see the substances that someone had placed spiritual efficacy into this little artifact, and I laugh at that until I consider that I've got little superstitions of my own. I wore the very same orange Auburn shirt when I watched every football game in 2013. 
and we kept winning. And then I wore it to Pasadena. And you are rubbing your head going, that's the reason we lost. Eric, everybody knows when you, when you come to the championship game, you got to change the shirt. I'm the only fool in the room. If you grew up Catholic, then you later became Protestant or Reformed, then you notice the stark differences in the, the sanctuary. The Protestant church looks very plain. In a Catholic church, you find statues of Jesus and Mary or various saints. In the mass, participants stop and they bow to statues of Jesus. The Catholic church teaches that there is a a difference between veneration and worship, but the Bible always says that, that bowing down is actually a posture of worship, which is why the apostles reject people bowing down to them in the New Testament. If you were to flip on cable and turn to the Trinity Broadcasting Network, TBN, there's a chance that somebody on there is willing to sell you a vial of water from the Jordan River as if it is bestowed with all kinds of spiritual power because, hey, it's the Jordan River. God says, don't be confused. Objects do not contain spiritual efficacy. Artifacts cannot bring you closer to God. The loss of them cannot take you further from God. Now, why is this such a big deal? Because first, sincerity in worship isn't enough. We have to worship God not in ways that we think are cool, but in the ways that he prescribes. That's the reason that Reformed churches like ours operate under the regulative principle of worship. It means that we do not invent how we worship God. God invents that. God tells us what those are. What does the Bible prescribe? Singing, praying, reading the scriptures, preaching of the word of God. We don't really have skits. We don't have cool lights or smoke. That would be awesome, but it wouldn't fit. Because God has not prescribed those things in worship. If the Lord is the object of worship, then we use the elements that he prescribes. And we don't try to be wiser than God in this. And that's what the confession says that we used earlier. Why is this such a big deal? Well, the second reason is that you cannot portray God's image better than he can. Where did God display his own image Genesis chapter 1, the Father and the Son and the Spirit say together, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so God created man in his own image and in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. You and I are called then to show dignity and respect to other people simply because God has placed his image in them. So you must not look at other people to use them for selfish purposes. You must not degrade them or foster yourself to be viewed in a way that is degraded, as pornography does. You must not hate or look down on another person for the way that they look, for the clothes that they wear or the color of their skin. You worship God on his terms, which connects to how you view others. The second commandment is about God's image. Now let's take a look at God's warning. Verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. 
There's a lot in this verse that is often misunderstood. First is this issue of jealousy. And God's character is the primary reason for obedience to the command. We have such a distorted view of jealousy that to us, jealousy seems like it's petty or trivial. But the Bible speaks like this. It says, God is your maker. He is your creator. He is the one who designed your being. And as the designer of your being, he knows how he crafted you. And he crafted you to function best when you worship him only. You are designed by God to give him the glory that he deserves. And when you exchange that worship for self-centered lesser things, it always sets you on a path toward destruction. You can imagine a clay mason who crafts a basin of ornate design. And this basin is meant to hold a pot of rich soil. And it is colored and hued in such a way that it will accentuate the flowers as they burst forth from the top. Some scoundrel steals the clay mason's basin and he stores poisonous acid in it. Used for that purpose. Not only is the basin a waste of beauty, but that basin will be destroyed. God's jealousy is actually zeal for his creature's well-being. God cares for you and he knows that when you bow down to objects and images and people that are not God, when you do not serve him, you always fall into servitude. You fall into slavery and there you self-destruct. Alec Moyer, an Old Testament scholar, says the first commandment concerns our loving loyalty to the Lord. The second commandment, with its reference to jealousy, raises the topic of his love to us. For jealousy is part of the essence of true love. And the Lord loves us, so loves us that he cannot bear it when our desires and loyalties go elsewhere. So jealousy is an aspect of God's love. Folks also get confused about the issue of God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. A slight translation change might help clarify the intention. Hebrew scholars agree that the point is this. I visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation if those children and grandchildren are also of those who hate me. Put simply, unless you repent of your own personal sins and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, God will punish you for your own iniquity. And unless your children and grandchildren likewise repent of their own sins and trust in Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior, God will be forced to lay the punishment of their own sins on them personally. It's not a biblical proof for generational sin but my dad had kind of a foul mouth and so yeah I just kind of always had a foul mouth my dad ran around with other women therefore I'm probably going to run around with other women well my mom she was an alcoholic so I'm also going to be an alcoholic verse 5 is really a warning to both parents and to children to parents first if your children only learn sin and wickedness from you 
and they turn around and repeat your patterns, God says, I will punish them for their unrepentant sin just as I will punish you for your own unrepentant sin. Now, why does God say it this way? Because you are more likely to be risky with your own behaviors than you are with your children in tow. Every parent understands that you grieve your children's pain more than you grieve your own. I would rather have the fever than my children have the fever. I would rather have the broken arm than my children have a broken arm. Listen carefully to this nuance. The tenor of your home doesn't guarantee or determine the outcome of your child's heart. But verse 5 is written in such a way to tell you that, that it is possible to give your children a downhill slide in one direction or another, toward righteousness or toward wickedness. Listen again to the nuance. Because overly tender parents will go, it's my fault, I did this. Parents, you can't make your children repent of, your, of their own sins. You can't make them choose Christ that is on them The very best you can do, the very substance of what God calls you to do is to model a humble, repentant, personal need for Christ and put them around the teachings of the gospel. Get them into church every week. Pray with them and for them. And in that sense, it's at least a downhill slide in the direction of repentance and faith. But 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says that spiritual things must be spiritually discerned. That is, only God converts people. And so they must have his spirit. There's an alternate way to live inside a home. And that is to model a prideful, stubborn independence. The kind of independence that shows no need for Christ. You can model that Jesus and his church is about number 37 on the list of important things in your life. You can model that cultural Christianity that is devoid of power can't do anything to change people. Biblically speaking, that would not guarantee that they would grow up to reject Christ. But the downhill slide would be in the direction of wickedness. And so here's the warning for children. There is laid before you a two-edged sword. And that is that your parents' faith cannot save you personally. You are not going to be delivered from hell because your parents trusted in Christ. It is up to you to turn from your own sins. It is up to you to grab hold of Christ by faith. And if you choose to reject Christ, to hate God, to live in an unrepentant way concerning your sins, the Bible says that he will punish you for your very own sins. More than that, There's another side of the sword. You stand before God, and no child will be able to say, well, you know who my parents were, right? God, you remember what they were like, because your parents did not choose for you your sin patterns. That falls squarely on you as an individual. And it doesn't matter where you think your parents fall on the the spectrum of mildly frustrating or downright wicked they won't suffer for your sins they will suffer for theirs apart from christ you will suffer for yours apart from christ 
which is why this gospel is so big and wide and open. Because it tells us in a, in, a, in a tone of extraordinary mercy that the God of grace offers this forgiveness to anyone who would come and take him. Your world tells you that how you were shaped in a home does everything to direct who you will be. The Bible says that's not entirely true. Oh, sure, some homes have advantages and some have disadvantages, of course. You worship God on his term, God's image, God's warning. We close with God's promise. This particular command is so much like other parts of the Bible. It issues a warning in order to guard us against sin, but it also issues a promise in order to move our heart to love the beloved one who already loved us in the first place. The same God who visits iniquities on on three or four generations, that's the same God who says in verse 6, I also show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Steadfast love to a thousand generations. That's the equivalent of saying, I'm willing to show steadfast love forever. My faithfulness to you can never be exhausted. The heart of this command is the issue of image. That is, God wants his people to understand his fatherly heart. To know him is to desire to serve him. And God says, I know that people in a fallen state would rather look at an image than hear my voice. But that's not better. In fact, at Mount Sinai and even today, true sight comes by hearing, not by seeing. The Bible makes it clear at the end of the Ten Commandments that it was the sound of Yahweh's voice that made the people quake. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's why Reformed churches like ours direct worship toward the word of God. So that the preaching of the word is actually the center of all of life. The Bible says in this life, hearing matters more than seeing. True sight, spiritual sight happens not by creating images of God, but by listening to the image of God. John chapter 1, the word of God became flesh on the mount of transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, a voice from a cloud said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. John 1 again, no one's ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. Jesus has made him known. Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the icon of the invisible God. John 14, 9, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews 1, long ago at many times our fathers received God's word through the mouths of prophets, but now God speaks to us through his son, who is himself the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. It would be nice to see the face of God, wouldn't it? 
At some deep level, we all long for that. The Bible says that while we are still in our flesh, in our sins, he is too holy and we are too wicked. Left to ourselves, we would invent all kinds of silly ways to feel close to God. From a tower of Babel to a golden calf to a lucky rabbit's foot. God said, don't do that. Ultimately, I show my steadfast love to thousands by revealing my image through my son, Jesus Christ. Embrace him. He's the savior. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your word to land in the hearts of your people. The Bible always speaks in a way to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And so I pray that your spirit would do that very thing today through the preaching of your word. And we thank you for it. It is a treasured gift in our hearing. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.